In this edition of the Embedded Insiders podcast, Brandon and Rich continue their journey into the world of open source, this time by focusing on Z-Wave that was recently donated to the community by Silicon Labs, who acquired the network technology from Sigma Designs. Later, the Embedded Insiders are joined by Lauren Slats from The Things Industries, who continues a discussion of open source networking technologies by outlining the state of LoRa and LoRaWAN. Finally, John Labrosse is back with Things That Annoy a Veteran Software Engineer, where he explains why the 80-column limit is stupid. Good afternoon, and welcome to the Embedded Insiders. I am Rich Nath, Executive Vice President of Open Systems Media and leader of the Embedded Computing Design franchise. Here with Brandon Lewis, who's slightly under the weather. Brandon? Hello. All right, so the topic for today is one that we have talked about a lot, open source. And I, I think it's one of your favorite subjects, right? Definitely. You know, it's taking over the world. We talked about RISC-V and, you know, how that open standard is leading to a lot of open source silicon. And it's a nice little segue that today we're talking about a different part of the semiconductor industry that's being open sourced, Z-Wave. You know, it's actually funny, though, because... I've always struggled with open source hardware and never really understood where it fit. You know, we had RISC-V, okay, well, there's one example. Now we actually have a second example. So, you know, maybe open source hardware is, will be just as significant as software down the road. So what I'm referring to is that Silicon Labs is opening up the Z-Wave specification so anybody can produce a Z-Wave microprocessor. In the past, it was free to design with the spec, but the only one who was producing processors was Silicon Labs through their acquisition of Sigma Designs. What do you think, before I give my opinion, do you think that's good, bad, and different? So when you look at, the, at that sort of you know, short-range wireless landscape that's, and those technologies that are being used particularly in home automation or you know, maybe some commercial automation, Z-Wave is, I guess you could call it one of the big three, but the gap is pretty significant. So obviously the other two big contenders there are Bluetooth and Zigbee and then, you know, to some extent Wi-Fi, but we'll just stay with these, you know, shorter, shorter range, lower bar specs for now. So opening up V-Wave is an interesting move. You know, you're really just sort of trying to salt the mine. If you have open designs and allow a lot more people to put Z-Wave products out in the market, growing the pie for that technology and hopefully Silicon Labs, given their uh, you know, history with the tech, will, will be where customers uh, default when they're looking to commercialize. Is this admission by Silicon Labs that uh, it wasn't what, what they thought it was and it's, it's just not as popular as, as they thought? I don't think that's necessarily the case. You know, you see a lot of companies uh, you know, through technology and then you know, spin them out uh, in one way or another. You, you know, it's interesting Scilabs acquired Micrium, and Micrium, uh, their micro COS, is open source. It's sort of the same strategy. You know, if a lot of people are familiar with the technology, they get their hands on it, they start designing with it, the more the merrier, right? Because eventually, if you're serious, you're going to need to go to market. And Silicon Labs has a lot of experience now in Z-Wave, um, micro COS, et cetera. I was pretty much playing devil advocate with you. I also think it's it's a good idea, and you know, I hate using these cliches, but the uh, the rising tide raises all boats kind of thing. If if they can get the um, Z-Wave market to grow 
in a significant way, they'll still be the dominant player there. So I, I, I think it's a good idea, and I would guess that's the strategy behind it. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the, the big problem that they're going to face is, is what the one I mentioned earlier. They're up against these mammoth technologies like Bluetooth and, uh, you know, just the economies of scale, the number of people who are familiar uh, with Bluetooth versus Z-Wave means that they've got a lot of ground to make up. But, yeah, look at, look at Linux. I mean, it's out there. All of a sudden, you know, we've got hundreds of thousands of people working on Linux, and then there are the Red Hats of the world, the Wind Rivers of the world, who sit there at the end. Okay, so you, you built something cool, but you need to harden it for the market, and here we are to help. Now, the Embedded Insiders are joined by Lauren Slats from The Things Industries. Today we really want to jump into uh, some topics we've discussed in previous podcasts about Laura and Laura Wan technology. But first, um, for those in the audience who aren't aware, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the Things Industries and, and, and what your role is in this ecosystem? So the, the Things Industries is a Laura One service provider. So we have a lot of like online, a lot of tools for companies to build their Laura One network. Um, so the Things Industries, it's the creator of the Things Network. And I think Network is one of the, the biggest LoRaWAN networks um, worldwide. It's an, uh, an open, community-driven LoRaWAN network. It now contains about 100,000 IoT professionals um, that together run about 10,000 gateways all, over, all across the world. I believe now, on a daily basis, we route about 15 to 20 million packets back and forth. Wow. Um, so if you really compare to big telcos, then that's, uh, that's maybe not a lot, very big number, um, but like uh, it, I think it, it doubles more than every year if you look at like how much we route at the Things Network. We we try to be interoperable with any LoRaWAN network and any LoRaWAN provider um, out there. So that means that all the different LoRaWAN network servers we like we like we work together on like enabling roaming and peering between these networks. Um, and there's something very interesting, which is more about a kind of fusion different radio technologies. So um, at the one hand, you use LoRaWAN for uh, like the long-range communication, but you can commun- like combine it with Wi-Fi or Bluetooth or, or different technologies, um, which makes it, for example, very interesting with um, asset tracking. So use, for example, the location features of Bluetooth beaconing or, or Wi-Fi scanning and then like translate these kind of sensor readings over LoRaWAN. One of the things that I think is important to note is that there are really two elements of LoRa technology. First, there's LoRa, that's the modulation technology in the FI, and that's licensed by Semtech. Um, and then separately, there's LoRaWAN, and a lot of that is open. Can you explain um, what elements of the technology stack um, are, are really open and available to the community and be, being driven by the ecosystem like the Things Network? So LoRa stands for long range, and that's a modulation technology to modulate um, basically binary data, which like your sensor data consists of. And it can modulate binary data to a wave format that can be sent via an antenna um, on a IoT device. So this kind of technology, that's called LoRa, and that's um, invented by a company that's called Cyclio. And this company was acquired in 2012 by Semtech, and Semtech is now basically the, uh, like the holder of that, uh, that IP. And around this modulation technology, um, there is like a, a standard, 
and that's called LoRa One. Mm. And LoRa One is an open standard, um, so anyone can use it. Um, there's also an open alliance involved. It's called the LoRa Alliance. And at this moment, they are, I think, um, over 500 companies that are now part of this LoRa Alliance um, that are really trying to push this technology to bring it to market and to further develop the technology as a whole. How I see it at this point is that um, so Semtech actually is, is like has been thus far the main driver of this whole technology, um, and they are also the founder of this, like one of the founders of this LoRa Alliance. And um, so the, the good thing about like having Semtech as the owner of the IP is that like you know that they are um, really there to bring to build this whole market. Um, so they are open to collaborate with anyone. So you don't exclude any partner. Uh, anywhere because like they really want to drive this technology globally um, but yeah of course there's a little bit of risk involved by having like this IP only in the hands of one company um, and that's I believe also why they license it now to different companies to different chip manufacturers including microchip and XP um, and, uh, and, and yeah it's a big question how like how the, the future involved and whether they really like keep this IP or at some point decide to, to open it up it's also very new technology, so it only exists for four years or so. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, like as with any like new technology, like there are a lot of there have been a lot of challenges at, at the beginning. Um, and like I, I, I'm actually quite confident that uh, at this stage the whole technology really matured and is ready to uh, to be fully implemented at scale. And you can, for example, see that at like the new uh, specific specifications that came out. Um, provided by the LoRa Alliance, like a few developments have been um, released that, like, even like further increase the security of IoT devices. Um, but you also see that at hardware vendors that now all, almost all of them, already released their second generation of these LoRa One chips, um, all making it smaller, cheaper, uh, more sensitive, so it can even pick up like more, more IoT packets at longer range. Um, so that's essentially really see the market maturing. What's uh, what's thing, the things network and things industries working on now? Uh, what's what's next for you? What's next, so we are um, we are now um, organizing the third edition of the Things Conference, which is um, which is a global event uh, targeting about two thousand uh, lower one professionals. Um, it will take place in Amsterdam on January 30 and 31st, and the idea is to bring the whole Lorelon ecosystem together, uh, to have all the relevant like partners and companies, yeah, be there and, uh, and showcase their their latest developments, innovations, and um, and uh, I think the good good things that that the event is really hands on. So anything that the partner presents, like you can directly experience it. Uh, during workshops and, uh, and really experiencing the technology and the hardware at the event itself. Now it's time for Things That Annoy a Veteran Software Engineer with John Labrosse. The, the biggest thing to me that, that, I, that irritates me is the 80-column limit. I mean, and that's a very religious topic, but a lot of programmers like to limit their code to 80 columns and I find that completely ridiculous because, you know, names of variables are much longer, so now they have a tendency to wrap around the next line. Uh, and, and with the 80-column limit, a lot of programmers are actually putting uh, code and comment in relief. So you got 
comment between lines one and eighty, and then code that follows, and then comments and code and and, and so on. Uh, my preferred way is to not limit to eighty columns and actually use you know, hopefully modern monitors that, that we have available today. Uh, I actually have a 4K monitor. I could actually put three or four uh, pages worth of code next next to each other, and I'm not limited to uh, uh, to 80 columns. Of course, I need to wear glasses with that, but at least um, at least I get to see the whole uh, a bigger picture. Because with code, you're still looking at a small window of the whole project uh, when you're using uh, a code editor. I believe that people got used to, you know, 80 by 25, uh, 80, uh, was it 80 columns by 25 line monitors and wrote the whole bunch of code around that. And then when the bigger monitor came around, then, hey, we were used to doing it like that. But, uh, you know, just imagine if you have to, if you have to create the code uh, tables, uh, for example, a whole bunch of columns worth of initialized data, uh, then what happens is you're going to have to wrap around the 80 columns, whereas if you're putting uh, more than 80 columns, then you could actually put vertically a column of like um, values. So if you're putting you know, temperatures in one column, pressures in another column, altitude in another column, it's a lot easier to see than if you're putting th those elements on separate lines because you're limited to that 80 column limit. Uh, you know, as new programmers come along, they see the old code from the company, and they basically say, oh, well, that's how they are doing it, so we'll do the same thing, and it propagates, unfortunately. Hmm. You need hmm. to have somebody that actually sets these rules and say, look, you know, make you have to use the code editor and what makes sense. And I'm a little bit, or I'm a lot anal-retentive, so... I like to line things up. I like I like to put spaces between stuff so that actually it's more readable. But uh, some some programmers, uh, you know, just don't do that. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Embedded Insiders. For daily industry news, videos, and podcasts, visit our website embeddedcomputing.com.